Let's stand and let's pray before we go into God's word. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we ask, let your word speak to each of our hearts. Without you, we can do nothing. God, without you, we cannot see. Lord, our own natures get in the way, and I just pray that you yourself, God, would speak to each and one of us today as we open up your word. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Henry David Thoreau was an American author. He has this famous quote that you might have heard before. He said that most men live lives of quiet desperation. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. And I think most people, the way they take that to mean is that most people are kind of unhappy with their current and ordinary lives, right? Working some usually stuck at some job that they're not enjoying. They're, they're unsatisfied. They come home. They're not happy. They're not happy really anywhere. And I think in a sense that this is true, but the Word of God and God himself, he offers us a different perspective on life. And right now we're continuing our series through 1 Corinthians 7, and that's kind of going to be the main thrust of the passage today. So let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll start with verse 17. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call, that means when he became a Christian, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant, or the Greek word is slave, actually. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. These are the words of God. And today we, shorter message, but I want to cover two themes, two themes out of this passage. And the first theme is contentment in Christ. And we find that in verse 24. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Church, I just want to remind us, do we not realize that God has intentionally assigned to each and every single one of us our life? And not just in general, but in the specifics. Where we live, who I am as a person, what is my personality, my gifts, my inabilities, who I'm married to, my kids, my friends, my neighbors, my enemies, my coworkers, all of it down to the very detail is assigned thoughtfully and intentionally by God. And if this is where God wants me and you to be right now, then our task is to be content. Verse 17 says, lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. The Lord has assigned to each and every one of us a life. For example, being a mother, 
That's a calling from God, right? Being a father, a provider, that is a calling from God. And I know that for many mothers, it's really hard to feel like you're serving God when all that you're doing is just cleaning, you know, dirty diapers, cooking food, they're eating it immediately, and then all you have is a pile of dirty dishes and you're trying to do all of these things, right? Assuming you're a stay-at-home mom, you're doing all this chaos just to keep the house a little bit clean so that in the evening it's semi-clean, right? Doesn't feel like ministry. Doesn't feel like serving God. Now, being a missionary, right, somewhere in Africa or Greece, that feels like spiritual ministry. Being a pastor at church feels like spiritual ministry. That feels like the top of the spiritual ministry pyramid, so to speak, right? But I'm certain, mothers, that there will be many, many mothers in heaven that will receive a far greater reward than many pastors and missionaries. My example, for example, my wife, I know when I get to heaven, she's going to get 70% of my reward, right? And then she's going to get 100% of her reward, and all I'm going to be left with is 30%. And I think that's actually fair, right? I think that's good. I will advocate for that. Just... I will explain why I think that way. But I just want to bring this point home. Mothers, it is not an accident that you are a mother here on earth. It's not like when God was planning out the history of the world, you know, he says, okay, I've got these couple of prime spots, the missionary and the pastor. Well, I really wanted to make you a missionary and a pastor and have you do great things for me, but sorry, all those spots are taken. So, but I have a mother, I have a position of a mother or just a wife, right? Um, I've got plenty of those. Do you want one of those, right? That's not how God approaches the world. No, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite goodness, God has created a world where each of us have this role. And, and these roles, all of them, all these roles, will bring him the maximum amount of glory. Church, let us remember that God, he does not measure success the way that we as people measure, right? We look at things, we look at big things, and we're like, wow, we're blown away by that. We look at num- big numbers, and we're impressed by that. God is not impressed by that. God does not measure fruitfulness or success in that way. Just remember the, the woman that Jesus seen as he was watching people donate in into the temple, right? And he's seen all these rich people bring many riches and they would donate. And then there came a little widow that donated $2, right? She donates that and he says, you see that woman right there, that poor widow? She has given more than all of them. <laughs> the disciples probably looked at that and they thought, Jesus, what do you mean? We're gonna, they're going to build an extra part to the temple with the money that the rich people donated. They're going to plate everything in gold, right? They're going to buy so many more sacrifices. They're going to feed all these other people. They're going to do all these amazing things. But these $2, they're going to get lost somewhere. They might never even use them. But in God's eyes, that widow's sacrifice was greater than all of them. Why? Because, Jesus explains, they, the rich people, they gave out of their abundance. And they gave a little bit. But she, who you would think, why would she even need to donate? Like, poor widow, like, don't even worry about donate. Why? They've got enough, right? The temple has enough money. Don't even donate. She donated all that she had to live on. 
And Jesus says she gave more than all. God does not measure success. God does not measure fruitfulness for the kingdom of God the same way that we do. And we have to remember that. If we as, the point is that we as Christians, we don't need to feel guilty over the fact that, oh, I'm not a pastor or a missionary and I'm not doing all these great explicit things for the Lord. Because if that's not the life that God has assigned for you, the desire for that is actually harmful. It's actually distracting you from what God is calling you to be faithful in. If God has called you to be a mother, right? And that's a lot of work. Be faithful in that. A father, be faithful in that. You see, we as people, we, sometimes, you know, I talk to people, and I find this in myself. It's, you know, I've I got to do something big for God. i just got to sell everything and go, go do something big for God. And it's just this feeling almost of, like, guilt, right? But God does not, I don't see it anywhere in the Bible, God does not call us to be faithful over something big. God only calls us to be faithful over the little that he has entrusted to us. So in a sense, my job in this world is not to glorify God with all of my life, so to speak. It's to glorify God with today. That's it. That's my only task. That's the only thing I have to worry about is today. Tomorrow is in God's hands. All the other tomorrows are in God's hands. I might not even be alive tomorrow. All I have is right now. All I have is this moment. All you have is right now. That's it. Are we faithful with that? And Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. You see, oftentimes we as people, we fail to be faithful in the little because we're so focused on thinking we need to do something big for God. In fact, I think the enemy uses this to his advantage. You see, there's two mistakes when it comes to thinking about doing, thinking that we need to do something big for God. The first one is we just get stuck daydreaming. Oh, I'm going to do something big. I'm going to, uh, one day I'm going to do something big, right? But the problem is we become so enamored with this idea of doing something big for God that we actually fail to be faithful in the little things that God is giving me right now. Or the second mistake, and usually we jump from these, both of these, right? We get discouraged. But I'm not doing anything big for God. I'm just living my ordinary life. I'm not doing it. And, and, and we get discouraged. And so we also fail to be faithful in the little things because we are discouraged. Church, this ought not to be. If you ever feel like, if you ever feel guilty because you're not doing big things for God, just remember, just remember that in God's own word, God tells slaves who are Christians to not worry about the fact that they are slaves. He says, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. He says, if you can't earn your freedom, great, do it. Take advantage of that. Notice God doesn't tell slaves, run away. They're profiting from you. Go become a missionary, right? Use that for the glory of God. No, he's, he doesn't tell them that. Here's another passage that I hope will, will bring this out more in fuller color. Colossians 3.22, it says, Bondservants, again, the Greek word is just slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the 
Lord. These people that Paul was addressing, they didn't have dream careers. They didn't have businesses. They didn't work for themselves. They didn't even get to pick who to work for. And yet, they were called to serve their earthly masters from the heart, right? Genuinely, truly. And I bet you, most of their masters were unbelievers. So why? Why were they called to serve them? The answer is in verse 24. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you mean to tell me, Peter, let me see if I got this right. You mean to tell me that... Slaves helping an unchristian master just earn a profit. That's, that's all you're doing is you're just helping him, this unchristian person, earn a profit who's probably going to use that money in a wrong way. That also serving him also, sound, also counts as serving the Lord Jesus Christ? What does the Bible say, church? Yes. Absolutely. That is ministry. How? Why? That that makes no sense. Because God is the one who has assigned each and every one of our lives. And church, our entire life is a service to God. Our entire life is a ministry to God. The key is whether we are faithful in all the circumstances that God has ordained for us. That's the key. God, in a, in a sense, God doesn't care about the result. In a sense, he doesn't care. He cares about our heart and the faithfulness of our heart, just like he cared about what the widow gave from the heart. She gave all that she had. Church, what are the two greatest commandments? Love who? God, right? With all of your heart. Who's the second one? Love what? your neighbor as yourself, right? We can do that anywhere. It doesn't matter who you are. You're a missionary, a pastor, or a mother. No matter where you are, who you are, when you were born, all of us are capable, and we need to love God and neighbor as ourselves no matter where God is calling us to be. Again, is it wrong to find another job? No. The Word of God says, if you can earn your freedom, do it. But until you, your two weeks are up, right? You give your two weeks, and in that very last day, don't slack off. Work all the way as for the Lord. Do it from your heart. Remember, God has intentionally assigned our life along with all of its details. You realize that God could have created a world where we didn't need to, like, grow food or work for food like they could have grown by itself birds could have brought it every you know three days three days you know three times a day just they could have like that just could have been the world that we lived in right and yet we see that that's not God's design in fact we see God's design in the garden before there was sin right before there was while the world was still very good and perfect Adam was placed into a garden, and Adam served God by gardening. That was his ministry towards God, right? He glorified God through that. He, it wasn't a temple, and he wasn't like doing, you know, rituals or something. I don't know how you would even serve God. He was just taking care of the garden, and that was pleasing to God. That glorified God. 
And yet there are things in this life that we don't need to work for by God's design, right? Like rain falling, sun shining. We don't do any of those things, but we do need to plant the seed. And we do need to take the fruit, right, from the ground. Or like Luther said on this topic, he said, God could have designed a world where the next generation, kids, right, they grew out of the ground. Like he could have done that. I know that sounds silly, but God in his power... I mean, if he made, he made plants to grow out of the ground, why can't kids grow out of the ground, right? And, you know, we, we see a lot of animals. They're born and they start walking right away. They don't need to learn how to walk. Like, God could have made fully grown humans. The next generation comes out of the ground and they say, I want to join your family. Yay, we love you, right? And, like, we, it would have been so easy, right? And yet... God in his design and in his wisdom created a world where the next generation literally comes through the body of the mother and they're, they're small and they're helpless, they're weak. Like they can't survive on their own unless you put a lot of energy and time into them. It is God's design that the next generation comes to us this way. God could have created a big world that's all it is is just a temple, and all we are is just priests, and just all we do is serve God. He could have done that. He didn't. He created a garden and a gardener. It's not by accident, church, that most Christians in the history of the world, they're not missionaries they're not pastors or Mother Teresa's. And it's not because those people are unspiritual and there's this little group of very spiritual people. No, because by God's good plan, most Christians are meant to just be good fathers, good mothers, good employees, good businessmen, good bond servants, and good neighbors. That's God's good design. And it's not... Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't dream big for God, right? I'm not trying to discourage that. But what I'm trying to say is that we should be faithful in the little first and foremost. We can't be negligent in the little things that God has given me right now with the excuse of dreaming big for God and doing something big for him ultimately one day somewhere in the future. If we are faithful in the little, and it is necessary for the glory of God, he will entrust us with more. If it's necessary for the glory of God, but if it's not necessary for the glory of God, why would we even want it? But if we have not been faithful in the little, God will never entrust us with more. Church, if we can be a people that embraces what God has assigned to each and every single one of us, and be very faithful in that little that he gave us, we will be a people that will truly change the world. Truly. Not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of the one whose only his eyes count and matter. In the eyes of God. We might never leave Sacramento for the rest of our lives. No one will ever know about us. But if we can be like that widow that gives all that she has, it will be precious in the sight of God. And if it's precious in the sight of God, then it will be precious for all of eternity because only God lives forever and ever. And also, I want to say that when we embrace the life that God has assigned to us, then what we do is we acknowledge and we celebrate God's sovereignty, God's power. We acknowledge 
his wisdom in all things, his goodness over our lives. None of us chose our gifts, our roles, our abilities, our personalities, our weaknesses, none of us. Yet we know, or we should know, that none of those things were assigned to us on accident. It's not like God was playing slot machines when he was creating us, like, right? And boom, there you go. That's who you're going to be. No, that's not how God designed this world. He has thought it all through every single aspect of our lives and how all of it connects together from the very beginning to the very end. God has thought it all through. None of it is by accident. So the only choice that remains for us is, will I embrace what God has entrusted to me and use it for his glory and be faithful in the little? Or will I begrudge what God has given to my neighbor, to my brother, my sister, and thereby refuse to be faithful in the little that God has entrusted to me? And lastly, I want to finish this first theme with verse 24. 24, at the very end, it says, let him there remain with God. Love that phrase. He doesn't just say, let him there remain. But he says, with God. Remember, God is not just out there in Africa with the missionaries. God is there exactly where he has called you specifically. In your situation, wherever it is you are, he is there. And he is always with you. And you are always with him, whether you realize it or not. So just be there with God. We need to constantly learn, and I'm talking about myself, learn and relearn how to live with God in every single moment of our lives. Not just when we're at church, not just when we're officially serving him, not just when we're reading our Bibles, but our entire life, wherever he has placed us to be with him, to fellowship with God to commune with God, to enjoy God. God has ordained that most of our life would be ordinary, church. Do we realize that? He's ordained that. It's not an accident. And when we fellowship with God throughout all of our ordinary life, our life will be anything but ordinary. The question is, will I live with him or apart from him? David speaks of this constant, intimate, ever-present fellowship with the Lord in Psalm 119. So, sorry, 139, he says, You surround me behind and in front, and you lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? I awake, and I'm still with you. May God help us, all of us, Lead the life that he has assigned to each and every one of us with him. And the second theme, so the first theme is contentment in Christ, and the second theme is reversal in Christ. And we see that in verse 22. It says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. I love the Bible because it does these interesting things all the time. What we see here is in Christ, many things are reversed. They're flipped inside out, right? Slaves become free. Free become slaves. And, and this theme of reversals is 
common in the Bible. Second, uh, Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He was rich, we were poor. He became poor, we become rich. Second Corinthians twelve ten. For when I am weak, then what, church? Then I am strong. Right? It's these opposites, these reversals. James 1, 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And lastly, Luke 9. This is amazing. Look at, this is when Jesus was on earth. Look at the way people talked to him. It says, and they were going along the road and someone said to him, first person, I will follow you wherever I go. How does Jesus respond? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> he says, And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's almost like he's discouraging him from following him, okay? The second one says to another, he said, this is Jesus, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then the third one, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's very interesting. Jesus pulls people in almost like an opposite direction. Jesus flips our lives upside down. And oftentimes, we as people, we, we stray into extremes, right? Into, you know, if you imagine life as that road, right? And there's two ditches on the side. Each of us are kind of always gravitating towards one ditch or the other. And what Christ does is he pulls us out, right? If the goal for us is to be like Christ, right? That's the, that's the narrow path to be like Jesus more and more, to imitate him. As Ephesians 5 says, imitate God, to be more like him every day, every year, to be in the middle of the road. Each of us, naturally, naturally, we have different starting places, Right? Each of us has our own ditch that we're stuck in, or we, we were stuck in when Jesus finds us, right? Some were rich, some are poor, others are bold, some are scared, some are too talkative, others are too quiet, some are educated, others are illiterate, right? But the more we are transformed into the image of the Son of God, the more we will leave our own particular flaws and become more like the perfect person, Jesus Christ. This is what I mean by there's that great reversal in Christ. I'm not saying we're all going to become the same just like these little robots, right? But, but there are there's certain unique features that will stay and they display the glory of God. But there are certain moral aspects that Christ is pulling all of us towards the center. Let me give you an example. Let's take the rich person. He is used to having things his way. He can get things done. If he has a desire, he knows he can satisfy it. If he needs help, he hires someone. He, he gets things done, right? If he has a problem, he buys a solution. Or like the Jewish problem, proverb says, if a problem can be solved with money, it's not a problem, right? That's the way he thinks. But when he comes to Christ, Christ humbles that. 
he realizes in Christ he can do nothing. Just like Jesus says, abide in me. If you do not abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. Wait, but I can feed people. I can do the doesn't count for anything. It's not real spiritual fruit unless you're abiding in me. And he understands that it's no longer him and his strength of what he can accomplish. He understands that the only thing I can accomplish is what I can accomplish by the power of Jesus Christ. And, and in order to do that, I need to set my power aside. I need to abide in Jesus. I am now fully and utterly dependent on the Lord. I am now a slave. I'm not my own boss anymore. I have a new boss, Jesus Christ. And that's how Jesus begins to transform him more into the image of Jesus Christ. By humbling him and teaching him not to rely on his own power. The poor, on the other hand, he's used to nothing working out for him. He's unlucky. Everything doesn't work for him. It's always other people deciding what his life looks like, and he has no control, he feels like, over his life. But when he comes to Christ, it all changes. He's encouraged to be strong in Christ despite his own weakness. He realizes there is a strength that he has access to that he never had to in his entire life. He's no longer just some slave that can't do anything, but he can actually do something in this life. That's why the Bible says the slave is now the freedman of the Lord. He's liberated from that. He can do things for the glory of God. The goal is the same, to be more like Christ. But we just, each of us are starting in different locations, on different sides of the road. The person that talks too much, probably when he comes to Christ, should do less talking, right? The person that talks too little should probably talk a little bit more for the glory of Christ. The person that knows a lot should remember that all the knowledge of the world is as nothing compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ. And it, it won't even last when we're going to be there in heaven. There's going to be new knowledge there. But the person who knows nothing, the, the person that's illiterate can rejoice in Christ knowing that he knows the only thing in this life that matters. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The strong person should be humble knowing that apart from God's power, he can do nothing of true spiritual worth. The weak can exult in Christ because he now has a power to be able to actually glorify God through his weakness. The rich should be humble because none of his riches will ever last. The day he dies is the day we everyone gets reset, is the day everyone's bank accounts go to zero. He will be just like everyone else in eternity, whereas the poor can rejoice in his exaltation, knowing that in Christ we're kings. We are. In eternity, we will reign and rule, and he will sit and reign and rule, just like all the rich people who have trusted in Christ. It's important for us to understand where we are personally, right? Which ditch am I in, so to speak? And where is the Lord pulling me, trying to change me into what direction to be conformed to the image of Christ. What needs to change about my natural state so that I look more like Jesus? In summary, to be like Christ is the goal. And oftentimes it is the opposite of who we are naturally. 
That was the reversal in Christ we looked at. And the first thing we looked at is being the contentment in Christ. Meaning God calls us, each and every one of us, to live for him wherever he has called us. And instead of asking ourselves, oh, what's this great, grandiose thing I can do for the Lord? Let's just ask ourselves, how can I be faithful in the little that God is calling me to be faithful in right now? Right now. Not tomorrow. I'm not going to be better tomorrow. It's right now. That's it. And friend, I just want to tell you that the first step in living for God is always repentance. It's coming to him to trust in Jesus with your whole life. Are you sick and tired of living just for yourself and it's all about you and this whole world, your time, your money, your relationships, it's all centered around you. Are you sick of that? Come to him. Are you sick and tired of who you are naturally, your nature? Come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. And he will give you a new nature, a new self, a new life, both here and the hope of eternal life with him forever. Amen? Let's stand and pray, church. We're going to give you 30 seconds of quiet reflection time. Lord Jesus, we, we worship you for your wisdom, your power, your sovereignty, your goodness over our lives. And I just pray, help us be there where you have placed us with you and make much of you, God, in the little things. It's all you ask for. Be faithful in the little. God, help me, help everyone here, God. We need you, God, and apart from you, we can do nothing. We believe that, and we cling to you, Jesus. We thank you. We pray this in your precious, precious name. Amen.